Welcome to iSelect's industry overview series, uh, otherwise known as Deep Dives. My name is Tom Bunn. I'm an associate on the iSelect Fund Ventures team, and I'm excited to walk you through today's presentation and findings and introduce you to some experts and entrepreneurs in the field of healthcare, and in particular, kind of the, the trend of the consumerization of healthcare. iSelect is an early stage venture capital firm in St. Louis, Missouri, focused primarily on early stage companies in healthcare and agriculture. We're privileged to live at the forefront of innovation, seeing emerging problems, solutions, and trends at their beginning before they make their way into popular culture. And we use these deep dive presentations to not only engage with and better understand new science and technology, but also to engage with the entrepreneurs, the change makers, the builders, the experts in, in uh, their respective fields. So one such topic that we've been keeping an eye on, especially in light of COVID, is, is the consumerization of healthcare which is the shift to individuals in asserting more influence and control over their medical and, and wellness care. Obviously, this shift has far-reaching implications across healthcare and affects what care modality, care location, the timing, and, and not notably the cost of care. So basically, this shift is changing healthcare as we know it. And again, of important note is that this trend is being accelerated and catalyzed uh, even further by COVID-19. But before we dive in, a few process comments. We are not soliciting investment or giving investment advice in any way whatsoever. We will be showcasing a few entrepreneurs. Just as a reminder, the entrepreneurs, again, we're not soliciting investments via this medium. This presentation is general industry research based on publicly available information. We've invited you to this because you are technologists, thought leaders, entrepreneurs, industry experts, early adopter customers, or sophisticated investors who are part of the iSelect network. We value your thoughts, questions, comments, and insights into this topic, and would greatly appreciate it if you actively engage during the conversation. We will have a, a rather large panel with differing viewpoints, but as far as I can tell, always worthwhile if someone from the, the broader audience wants to unmute themselves and offer a comment or a question. But for the time being, we do ask that you put yourself on mute. But again, please feel free to provide commentary at your leisure. Finally, this presentation is being recorded and will be available for replay. So without further delay, I am pleased to bring you this week's deep dive on the consumerization of care. So quick background, what we're gonna be doing, quick exec sum, introduction of the speakers. Um, then we're gonna get into some of the causes and sectors of the consumerization of care. And then hopefully we'll spend the lion's share of the morning discussing uh, a few different entrepreneurs' angles they're taking on this shift to consumerizing medicine and care. And then we'll have some time at the end for discussion and considerations going forward and any other Q&A. Broadly speaking, I'll leave this exact sum for people who, you know, retroactively view this, but, you know, broadly speaking, I think we're shifting from kind of a patriarchal way of practicing medicine to a much more individually focused way of receiving and, and finding care. You know, for example, I think a great anecdote, which really surprised me when I was learning about this subject, learned from Eric Topol's book, The Patient Will See You Now. He cited a study that showed that as late as 1961, 88% of physicians had a policy of not telling their patient they had cancer. So that is kind of the far end of where we're coming from. That's the antithesis of what I hope to flesh out today. And that sort of mentality, I think, is also echoed in terms like doctor's orders which epitomizes the problem and continues to put the patient as sort of a second-class citizen relative to the provider or the doctor. 
And instead we should be moving towards an ethos of nothing about me without me. In other words, the patient is an integral part of the uh, care decision. Obviously the doctor will continue to be one, but the patient is, is front and center and has obviously has a vested interest in their health and knows when things go wrong and, and can play a, a very beneficial role in their health as well. So again, broadly defined, the consumerization of healthcare is the shift to individuals asserting more influence and control over their medical and wellness care. There are a ton of reasons, I think, for this increasing costs, increasing costs of healthcare, along with the democratization of information caused by uh, a bunch of cool technologies, you know, sequencing sensors, high-speed internet have made the availability of information and studies and the pro proliferation of information very much democratized. And there's a precedent for other industries. You know, we think of healthcare as a high-tech industry in terms of digitization. The McKinsey Digitization Index actually ranks healthcare very low compared to a number of other industries. For example, media and finance have really led the way in terms of digitization and consumers are seeing that and they're, and they're wondering why can't we do similar things in healthcare and wellness. So today we'll take a look at three companies, uh, one in direct to consumer wellness, one in telehealth and one in payments that put the consumer front and center. And we'll then discuss other areas right for change and consumerization. So getting into it, just brief introductions, just going left to right and then below and then left to right. Craig Frowdy, would you mind giving a brief introduction, please? Yes, thanks, Tom. Good morning. Obviously, my name is Craig Frowdy. I've been involved in the healthcare technology world for almost uh, 25 years. I started one of the very first uh, online health and wellness companies 25 years ago called WellMed. We created tools that included an online health risk assessment test that would help to deliver personalized healthcare information to each individual based on their specific situation. We had behavior modification programs like weight loss, online, online smoking cessation, et cetera. We had telephonic health coaching to help people make, uh, make those changes. And we had online benefit decision support. Our customers back in those days, and again, this was a long time ago, but were large employers like uh, Starbucks and IBM and Walmart and Kroger. Uh, and then we also worked with health plans like Cigna and Aetna and, and 20 of the Blues plans across the nation. So our whole goal was to provide information to individuals so they can make better decisions, which would ultimately help them and then ultimately help lower healthcare costs for their, for their employer who is sponsoring the benefit plans. Great. Thanks, Craig. Brenda? Good morning, everyone. Brenda Irwin, managing partner of the Relentless Venture Fund probably one of the only connects on, on the call based in Vancouver, BC. Uh, I manage a health tech fund that focuses on the four most common chronic conditions associated with aging, so diabetes, heart disease, mobility, and mental well-being. And they also are often comorbidities. Having one and the other is, is a common outcome. We are a North American-focused fund and have a priority over remote patient monitoring and patient-centered care. And the you know, fortunate reality in terms of COVID that has provided a, a positive focus for our fund is we've been looking for a few years for the broader market to consider mainstream opportunities and what we were doing versus them to be considered niche. So 
we're quite excited about the panel. I'm quite excited about being participating this morning and also the new opportunities that are afforded to the individual in managing their own health. Great. Thanks, Brenda. And, and appreciate you joining us on day one of the NHL season. I imagine it's a national holiday up there in Canada. So <laughs> it's uh, yeah. nice of you to nice of you to take some time. Sonny Jane, do you mind giving a, a brief introduction, please? Hi, good morning, everyone. My name is Sonny James, CEO and founder of Sun Genomics. I have a background in clinical diagnostics. I've spent a good part of my career, a couple decades, working for small startups like Pathway Diagnostics, developing molecular assays, and then working for reference labs like LabCorp, assisting with bringing state-of-the-art molecular technologies into the clinical reference lab setting. And then more recently, for about seven years, I worked for Illumina and had the good fortune and maybe possibly just dumb luck of getting to be uh, the first laboratory scientist to process a, a clinical human genome in a CLIA CAP certified lab. Uh, and that was in 2009. And it took us uh, about four months of effort and if you're familiar with the Illumina technology, it took like 27 flow cells. It was very expensive. Uh, by the time I left, we were doing that in three days on a single flow cell. So it just gave me a view into how rapidly this uh, sequencing and molecular technology was advancing. And uh, I had a personal reason that I'll share in a little bit of why I wanted to start a company of my own. So I'm excited to chat with you today. Awesome. Thank you, Sonny. Greg? Hey, good morning, everyone. Tom, thanks for having me. Excited to be here and be part of the conversation. I'm Greg Peters. I'm the Chief Executive Officer and Co-Founder of Better Healthcare, which was formerly Better PT. I've spent my entire career in an integrated health model in New York City, delivering care under one roof and really trying to understand how we could best serve people managing care, keeping costs low, but really about enhancing quality of life. Stepped out in 2014, to take on the, the daunting task of creating the first mobile app that was focused on health and wellness. I wanted to provide access to people. And, and then we'll talk more about my company, but really focused on access. And if we could bring access to people, people would get better. We would remove, reduce anxiety and people would really start to take a hold of it. Ended up pivoting into healthcare. As we can probably all attest on this call, Probably not the best move from my anxiety perspective, but uh, very excited to be here. And, and I think we're, we're making a big impact as it relates to access. So again, really excited to tell a little bit more of the story and get involved in the conversation. Awesome. Thank you, Greg. And last but not least, Kim Wagner. Hey, well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I realize we could be going around the globe. So whatever the sun looks like in your space. I am the managing partner of, well, actually it's TBGB Partners. It's a little wrong on there, but that's okay. Ooh, sorry, it's okay. And uh, I'm a scientist by training, I came through decades in the management consulting space and now have a boutique firm where we work on strategy and product development uh, for startups, um, midsize and actually large cap companies. As a scientist, what you realize very quickly is that the technology underpinning life sciences, agriculture, nutrition, food, almost everything that, that has a, a scientific underpinning actually starts to come together in a very interesting way. And so 
I serve across that entire value chain. And so we can very quickly think about how you port technologies across segments or how um, technologies being developed in one segment could actually affect another. So it's great to be here today. I'm excited for the conversation. And if you indulge me at some point, I may actually bring it into the animal health space. Great, thanks, Kim. Great, well, let's get into some of the background real quick. Again, in light of the great entrepreneurs we have on the call, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go through this rather quickly, but feel free to stop me if there are any questions or comments. Basically, what I'm gonna to try to do over the next couple of slides is, is talk about why consumerization now is happening. A couple, a couple contributing factors, not least of which again is COVID, but let's start with rising prices and chronic diseases. So as you, as you may know, U.S. spends a whopping $3.5 trillion at least on healthcare every year, which is 18% of GDP. And very notably, 84% of that healthcare expenditure is on chronic disease. So look on the, the right-hand uh, side of the year screen, you can see how we compare to uh, similar economically stanced countries with individuals with two-plus chronic diseases. So that's with two plus, currently four in 10 Americans have at least one. And so that's contributing in, in a large degree to this increasing healthcare spend. On the left here, you see uh, the spending per capita since 1970, that we've gone up by 31X since 1970 on a nominal basis and 6X since 1970 on a real basis in, in 2018 dollars. So our costs are huge. And relatedly, there's also been a drastic increase in high deductible plans. So these are, over the last decade, have increased dramatically again. Currently about 82% of covered workers are on a plan compared to about 63% a decade ago. And the average deductible itself has doubled uh, from 826 to, to 1600. And you can see on the right, the number of firms who are offering these high deductible healthcare plans to their employees, again, going up almost exponentially over the last decade. And the reason behind this, obviously, is that as patients are on the hook for more of their care, they become more incentivized to consume wisely. You know, before deductibles, the, the financing of their care was out of sight and out of mind. But as it's increasingly in their mind, they want to get the, the best possible care and want transparency and price transparency and options. And they want, in short, empowerment. I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about some of the tailwinds specifically uh, for the consumerization of care. I think you, you couldn't talk about this without talking about telemedicine. Greg will get into this in more detail. But the regulations in light of COVID have changed and been eased since early March, allowing easier access. In March, a CMS ag agreed to pay for virtual visits at the same rate as in-person visits. I mean, you can see here, this is a little bit dated data from the Commonwealth Fund, but obviously a sharp uptick in March with telemedicine usage. You begin to see leveling out in June. I'd be curious again to get Greg's and, and other folks' perspective on where that leveling out will go, what the asymptote is, or will it go down to zero, or wh where, where we'll be in, you know, January of 2022 with regard to telemedicine. Also another COVID-19 tailwind, wearables and wellness. So healthcare wearables 
was estimated to reach 30 million shipments in 2020, increasing to 104 million in 2025, growing at a pretty fast clip. And this includes a lot of the things that we've heard about for tracking and, and preventing COVID over the last 10 months, continuous glucose monitors, pulse oxes, you know, things that can help you give you proxy for, for health as you're trying to avoid what we have on our hands now. Then also wellness, the idea of, of preventing COVID and, and increasing overall wellness as a bolster against, you know, disease and death, I think has, has really been shifted into the limelight with COVID. Obviously it was important before, but there was a survey done by ADM Outside Voices Research. And what they found is that there's increasing focus on gut health and immune function connection. So globally, 57% of consumers report being more concerned about their immunity as a result of COVID-19. Similarly, a, a majority of consumers have indicated that they are putting an increased perspective and they're putting more weight on their weight and their metabolic health. So we'll get into some of that with, with Sonny. Be very curious to get his take on that. I know they've had a great year in 2020. <clears throat> the last thing I'll point to is just you know, some very big deals that have happened in 2020 and that are poised to happen in 2021. <clears throat> you know, one of the biggest is Livongo. So as many of you know, Livongo is a chronic condition management platform that offers coaching for diabetes patients and has scaled beyond diabetes to enable treatment for hypertension, weight management, and more. They went public in 2019 they were about a $12 billion company, and then they got bought for $18 billion by Teladoc, which is one of the leading telehealth platforms in August of last year for $18.5 billion. And it's important to note that when Livongo went public, the instances of the use of consumer in their S1 surpassed 50 times. So the, the consumer-centric focus of Livongo is, is really in their DNA. And I think that's partly why Teladoc was so keen on and, and was so keen on acquiring them. Also in the fact that they had, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of members. A few other big deals I, on the IPO market, GoodRx is a consumer focused price comparison tool for prescription drugs. They went public in September of last year at a pre-money valuation of just under 12 billion. Then you see One Medical, which is a membership-based primary care platform with over 475,000 members. It targets consumers and employers as customers. It raised $280 million in their IPO um, at a $1.7 billion pre-money. Clover, which uh, just recently happened, is a very interesting Medicare Advantage platform with better prices and unique tech experience for seniors. Went public via a SPAC last week with Oak Tree. Actually, with that was not with Oak Tree. That's the next one. They went public via SPAC last week. And then we have upcoming deals. So you may have heard of HIMS and HERS. This is a telehealth platform that enables consumers to get care and medication for various specialties, including sexual health, dermatology, and they're going public via SPAC by Oak Tree Management slated for 2021. And then finally, another interesting company called Oscar is a tech-driven health insurance company with health at its core. 
you can talk to a doctor within minutes. There's, you know, big focus on the app component of the Oscar platform. They've raised 140 million led by Tiger Global in early December. And then shortly thereafter in December, they filed with the SEC to go public sometime in 2021. So those I think are good beacons for some of the entrepreneurs um, that we have on the call today. And again, they show that this is investors are putting the money where the mouth is when it comes to uh, the consumerization trend with all of these companies really focusing on to some degree or another uh, the consumer experience and, and making it better than what has previously been the standard. So with that, getting into the entrepreneur highlight, uh, again, we have direct to consumer wellness. We'll start with Sunny, then we'll go into telehealth with better healthcare. Then finally, uh, we'll talk about payments, especially in light of the high deductible plans with Craig and MedZero. But Sunny, can you tell us a little bit about Sun Genomics and, and what you guys have been working on and what the impact of COVID has been on you guys? Because I know it's been, it's been interesting for you. Thank you, Tom, for the, the introduction and, and the background information. So we're, we're Sun Genomics. We're a microbiome health company. We founded in 2016 and founded the company just to give a little bit of background because my son was having GI issues. He was really young, basically crying every time he had a bowel movement. And you take him to the doctor or we took him to the doctor and doctor sort of evaluates and decides, well, prescription medicines are not appropriate for this age child why don't you try a probiotic? So that sort of started me on my probiotic journey to understand what are probiotics at the time. I believe the market size was around 300 to 400 million. What is today $2.4 billion dietary supplements uh, market for probiotics in the United States. But I get there and I encounter, if you've ever been to a natural food store or Whole Foods and gone to the supplement aisle for probiotics, I encounter what I call the wall of probiotic confusion. It is just massive. There's like this refrigerated section and you're trying to decipher between strains and CFUs and concentrations and different mixes. And one thing says it's for babies and it's got two strains. Another thing says it's for babies and it's got 15 strains. It just didn't make a lot of sense, uh, especially with a background in microbiology. So I'll make a long story short, I spent about $30,000 in the first eight months of Sun Genomics working on trying to find the best probiotic for my son. And in that process, I tested his stool and ran this metagenomic sequencing technology using the aluminum platform and, and bioinformatics. Could understand all the microbes inside of his stool and shared it with the doctor. And the doctor looks at it and goes, what am I supposed to do with this? And so at, at that point, I realized maybe the technology was outpacing the practice of medicine there. And really it was just gonna be on me if I wanted anything to change or take an action or an intervention to, take, to, to make use of that information. And I call it the most important data set I've ever looked at. You know, I found inflammatory microbes and then I started researching what those can do. And it did have the negative associations to inflammatory diseases or, or syndromes. And so 
we wanted to take, to take action. And that's where I uh, brought in a bunch of uh, probiotic strains and then provided it back to him and then retest him to see where his gut microbiota is and found that those inflammatory strains were down, which was the first precision probiotic ever made, I believe in 2016. And we now call this product Flore. It's available for anyone and it doesn't cost $30,000. It costs $99 and it doesn't take eight months. It takes eight days uh, to get your results. And it's become a consumer focused product line offered as a DTC as part of our, our Flore Laboratories, CLIA Laboratories setting that we have in San Diego. And we first and offered it, I thought it would be to find similar parents that would want to try the same thing for their children, but that's a really difficult thing to do is to convince parents to, to do this for their children. So we began offering it broadly to adults and found in the marketplace that microbiome associated diseases affect you across your lifetime. So things like obesity, depression, autoimmune disorders, IBD, IBS, even Parkinson's and Alzheimer's has now been directly related to be a microbiota impacted condition. And, and so we could offer this broadly to children and adults. And now we're several years into full commercialization. We've got thousands of active subscribers that renew every month. We've got a, a good portion of those subscribers that have been on the product for over a couple of years, tracking, trending their benefits and interacting with us, Sun Genomics as a company and allowing us to understand what are their gut health issues and finding solutions for them. So this is all kind of coming back to what Tom has sort of set the stage for is at home direct to consumer testing while these guys are away from their physician or their doctor, their treating physician and finding solutions that are quick, informative. And the key term is solutions. So not just actionable information or information but providing that next level of information and solution with the probiotic or the dietary supplement here. And then tracking that, how is that actually helping and working for them? So we're, we're really excited to see where this goes in the next few years. We've definitely turned a corner in 2020. What originally we thought was gonna be a really challenging year due to the pandemic turned out to create increased awareness around just how important the gut microbiome is and how that's related to your gut immunity through your galt or your malt and a gut associated lymphoid tissue that resides right outside of your intestinal tract. And now are launching products to further engage our community and ecosystem. And so we just recently launched a COVID stool test for long COVID or also for maybe called long haulers where pockets of uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus is found inside of stool and is an indication that you're gonna have a long-term effect. There's um, so many different types of long-term effects including organ damage or autoimmune conditions. 
that we believe are founded from a gut microbiota infection of SARS-CoV-2. And if you can detect it and make an intervention, um, then you have a shot at uh, reducing those long-term effects. And it's resonated really well with the audience we have. And we're excited to, to bring that to market. And I'll just kind of pause there as an introduction to some genomics and what we do. Thanks, Tony. That's great background. I guess I'm hanging on to one of the things you mentioned at the beginning of your uh, discussion, which was around kind of the doctor not knowing what to do with the data. What is the clinical route for Sun Genomics at this point? Obviously, great success with direct-to-consumer, but how will you augment that with either a clinical approach or, or otherwise to, to increase the scope? Yeah, good question. We've onboarded some great advisors. We have an MD-PhD from Stanford, Dr. Saab Gomber. Uh, who's our board certified pathologist, and he is leading our uh, CLIA CAP certified clinical laboratory called Flore Laboratories. So getting this type of testing into clinical diagnostics takes uh, steps and stages, and I saw that with human genomic sequencing as well. You, you can launch the technology and have the world's greatest assay that detects everything, but commercializing it is another thing, and then getting adoption of it is another thing as well. And so the fastest way to do that, as opposed to creating a diagnostic kit and hoping the market comes to you, is to actually offer it as a service. And you can do that through a CLIACAP certified laboratory as an LDT. And since we already have a, a very solid consumer base, those individuals and their physicians or um, other health, health practitioners that interact with our, our company can begin to order items out of our CLIA laboratory. And then down the road, as physicians become more comfortable, they'll have a place to go for a reimbursed type of offering in the next few years. And then we absolutely believe microbiome technology should be standard of care. I mean, I would as a parent, uh, advocate for it for any child born at some interval and stages across their lives. I ran it, my nephew was born during the pandemic and we, we ran his microbiome like six times and he was on antibiotics during the course of that uh, stretch. And there's, there's absolutely without question something there that happens from the gut microbiome perspective early in life. And if we don't begin screening for it, at regular intervals like a checkups, we're, we're gonna make our children susceptible to these late stage conditions, asthmas, allergies, IBD, IBS, ultimately impacting healthcare. But you know, the worst part of it is the parent is having to see their child suffer. And so that's where we see clinical offerings beginning to mature. And for Sun Genomics, we're on that roadmap and we're bringing in advisors to help us bring this to the clinic. And ideally that's gonna become a reimbursement strategy down the road. I think it's no secret that the microbiome is headed that way. We see it and I think we're just looking for the support structure for that. So maybe to, to close, we would welcome um, those that are physicians or health practitioners on the call. If you're interested in uh, working with us, advising us, 
we are always looking for great advisors and people to advocate for this type of technology. Fantastic, thank you, Sonny. Really appreciate that. We'll probably come back to you with questions at the tail end, but in the meantime, let's go over to Greg at, at Better Healthcare. Greg, can you tell us a little bit about Better Healthcare and, and what the future has in store for you in, in light of everything that's going on and, and telehealth in general? Sure. Thanks, Tom. Yeah. So, you know, Better Healthcare, we're a technology company focused around solving the problem of access. You know, we, we really exist because we believe everybody deserves access to care. And we can talk about great care, but really it's the right care. We started our journey in the physical therapy industry, really with the hypothesis that people would consume care like they would uh, travel in food. And when you remove that patient anxiety as the main obstacle, treaters will actually address injuries better. And physical therapy allowed us to test this hypothesis on a, on a very broad audience. It also hadn't really adopted technology outside of the EMR that was modern, interoperable, and, and truly scalable. We also looked at the opportunity to find and explore ways to create a different approach for physical therapists to deliver care. And we'll talk about telemedicine, what, what Tom is alluding to. And, and at the time, direct access to physical therapy was something that was really relatively new. So we had the, also the unique ability to go direct to consumer and educate consumers around the benefit to them from a health perspective, but also we knew that there was a direct impact to cost to, to you know, kind of upstream. So we launched Better PT in January of 17. We started to build and we deployed really our first layer of technology or services to physical therapy in late uh, April of 18, and really trying to understand, uh, you know, what they struggle with with access. And we've, we've grown at such a rate because of the need for this digital front door. And I think the, the most compelling part for us was the data, the data and what we were collecting on the behavior of the consumer. So fast forward to COVID, we had already started to build our telemedicine platform. And our objective with telemedicine prior to the pandemic was to deliver it into the hands of physical therapists so that they could have a different and new type of connection point with patients, almost like we do with our families in FaceTime. There's a comfort there. And what it would allow them to do in a very meaningful way was really to find out who that patient was, was it the right place for them to be through video. Pandemic obviously changed our circumstances. We launched in a frenzy for physical therapy right away. We deployed our telehealth around March 23rd and you know, just through the third quarter of 20, we had already done 5 million minutes of calls. So we had the unique opportunity as a company focused on, on access to get real-time feedback. We developed a telemedicine platform really in the trench, and we got to really understand the consumer behavior and the provider behavior of our telemedicine platform. And the key piece is this. Telemedicine is a product, but we build platforms. Why are platforms interesting? Because they provide data. A platform is something that should be scalable, most importantly secure, 
But what we've developed is a telemedicine platform that we believe people will start to integrate into their, into their treatment services or their service offerings. And what Tom was talking about, the volatility, we saw tremendous volatility in physical therapy. Why? Well, one was reimbursement. The second one is they were very, very uncomfortable not being experts on telemedicine. And I think this is something that has to come out in the forefront. You're not an expert, not yet. You've spent your entire career treating people bricks and mortar. Telemedicine provided, yes, a place or a venue to see patients, but it doesn't mean that they were or felt comfortable treating them. So we saw this incredible learning curve. And our goal as a technology company was try to, trying to make that experience better, trying to make it more meaningful. One of the ways we did that is we actually invested heavily in not only our data capabilities as it related to telemedicine and the behavior, but we, we invested heavily in the recording. Why is the recording valuable? We believe that the future of healthcare is going to be around content, your own personal content. And telemedicine pre presents a very unique opportunity for both patient and provider to capture a moment in time with lots of information. And if we can share that with not only the patient, have a record of it for the provider, we also address some of the stakeholder issues. One is fraudulency, right? Payers have a very kind of, let's call it a big challenge as it relates to fraud. Only way really to, to help them through that process is to have some type of authentication process, which could be in a recording. So we really invested heavily in that. And then from a quality control perspective, you know, we work with the providers with those recordings. So not only did we see the volatility in PT, but we also saw this incredible need for platform telemedicine outside of PT. And that's where we really got our opportunity to, to, to leap from PT into two other verticals in a commercial setting. One in the ABA space and the autism space and the other one in the renal care space both chronic disease. And there was a need for platform telehealth, something that was customizable, scalable, had recordings because they both partners uh, viewed that as the opportunity for them to really grow their connection into the community. And, and a place where they could continue to explore this hybrid model because they believe that telemedicine is not going away, which, which is what we believe as well. So it's really been an incredible journey for us as a, as a technology company. We continue to invest heavily on the data. We really want to understand the behavior of consumers. We cannot continue to go on this path of, you know, treatment and outcomes are better than ever, but access stinks, right? So we, we really need to focus down on how we meet patients where they are to help them in their decision-making process. And we have done that from a platform perspective. Our products, online scheduling, telemedicine, recordings, and even our marketplace is wrapped into one opportunity. And we believe that there's a universal opportunity now to help health systems all the way down to, to mom and pops. So, you know, again, really excited to be part of this whole evolution. The pandemic has accelerated us probably by five years, but we are really focused in on the problem of access. Fantastic, Greg. Super interesting. And, and I look forward to getting you in front of the rest of the ISLUC team in, in just a couple of weeks and plenty more questions to ask you. But in the interest of time, let's switch over to, to Craig Frowdy at MedZero. Craig, can you talk a little bit about what you're doing? I know you had a ton of interesting data points around 
consumers' ability to pay in light of these high deductibles in your deck. So just be curious to hear kind of what MedZero strategy is, how it came to be, and, and uh, where it's going. Yeah, sound, sounds great. Appreciate the opportunity. I wish I would have known about Greg's company earlier. I, I had my hip replaced in February right before this whole pandemic thing hit. And so I had to travel into my physical therapist, you know, on a weekly basis to expose myself to, uh, to COVID. We could have done it online. I had no idea. So yeah, MedZero, you know, you mentioned you had some great stats up front, Tom, and, and when, when you uh, opened this up. And I think, you know, you mentioned that the total healthcare spending in the U.S. is about $3.5 trillion on an annualized basis. What you didn't mention was that $1 trillion of that is spent by consumers. So one-third of all those costs are paid for by, by individuals. And we've seen those costs increase dramatically uh, for both corporations who are, you know, uh, having to sponsor you know, health insurance programs and, uh, and, and for individuals. So, you know, today we've got about 154 million people who are actually sponsored by their employer and, and have employers, you know, employer in, uh, sponsored insurance. And there are about 8,000 employers that provide that insurance. And now we've seen these costs increase. And it's not really the, the employer's uh, challenge here. It's a challenge, but it's not really their fault. They're just trying to provide a variety of benefit plans. You've got HMO, you've got PPO, you've got high deductible health plans, et cetera. And, and they really want to provide those different types of options for people so that folks can, can get into the appropriate health plan. For many folks, you know, high deductible plan is appropriate. But for others who are high utilizers of healthcare, they may need a lower deductible plan, which means they're going to be paying a higher premium. So as we have all these different decisions to make, it becomes a very complex world, right? So today we've got about 86% of employees that are, that are carrying a deductible of $500 or more. And we've got 54% that have a deductible of $1,000 or more. So that, that's out of pocket, right? So that, that doesn't include co-pays, doesn't include co-insurance. That's just your, your, you're going to pay the first $1,000 when you go see a, a physician or uh, whatever the case may be. So that may or may not be, you know, a daunting task for many of us, but unfortunately, the stats would also say that 40% of households struggle to pay a $400 bill. They can't come up with $400 without selling something or borrowing. And in fact, it was $88 billion that was borrowed last year just for healthcare expenses. And, and, and just to put some, you know, emphasis on that, in 67% of the bankruptcy cases filed last year, medical debt was part of that bankruptcy. So this is a massive societal problem that we have here where we have healthcare costs that are increasing, we have an aging population, we have more exposure for the consumer. And then at the end of the day, if you have to go get a procedure done, you're gonna go get it done. So either you're gonna borrow to pay that or you're not gonna pay it. And there were about $50 billion that was written off last year by hospitals who were unable to collect the debt that they were owed. So that again, this is a massive, massive, nationwide issue. So what, what we have done is we've, we've really created a platform that provides a series of healthcare navigation tools as well as financing. So, you know, employees or individuals, we all struggle with healthcare in, in multiple dimensions, right? So we have to make a bunch of decisions. You know, which plan should I select? What's the right plan for me? Most people tend to be overinsured. And that means that they don't, they don't want to have this exposure to $2,500 or $5,000 of, of liability. So they say, gosh, I'm going to pay more every month in, in premium dollars, and then I won't, I won't have that issue. The challenge with that is that it costs them more money, typically, 
and then ultimately it costs the employer more money at the same time. So everyone kind of loses in that scenario. So we, we want to have a, a platform that, that helps people, you know, get them in the right plan based on their utilization. Which treatment's right? There are lots of treatment options that are out there. If you've got chronic back pain or, you know, even prostate cancer, whatever the case may be, there are lots of different treatments that you have. How can we help that individual make the right decision for them? It may be a procedure or surgery or it may not. So let's help them understand what those options are and then ultimately make those right decisions. Which provider, you know, which doctor or hospital should they choose, you know, based on cost and quality? Most folks, again, don't understand in-network versus out-of-network versus all the different decisions that have to be made. We want to help guide people into those right decisions so they can ultimately make the, the best decision for them financially, as well as, you know, looking at cost and quality. And then ultimately, how do I pay these out-of-pocket costs? I've been in the revenue cycle business also. And so you, you find these hospitals that are really having a tough time because they provide the service and then they have to go collect. And then ultimately the patient's already received that service. And so, you know, what the, the hospital oftentimes has to go actually sue people in court to collect. Well, that's not really a, a healthy system. So, you know, we think there's a better way to do it. And then, and then ultimately also, how do you know you were billed uh, correctly? So insurance is super complex. You've got these explanation of benefit statements that come out and all these other billing statements. And sometimes the insurance company pays, sometimes they don't. How do, how do we know that everything was done correctly? So, you know, we've built a platform or are building a platform that ultimately provides healthcare navigation tools and financing to ensure that these employees are optimizing their employer-sponsored benefits and in order to make sure that they're getting the right care at the right place at the right time for the right price. We're ultimately lowering healthcare costs for employers and then for employees and making healthcare more accessible for everybody. So we've got everything from, as I mentioned, benefit decision support tools to get you in the right place, treatment decision support tools to make sure you're getting the right treatment, cost and quality and transparency tools, financial guidance, uh, making sure that you're using your HSA if you have that and, and, and other tools to, to minimize your healthcare costs, bill review and price optimization, and then ultimately you know, partner referrals and getting folks in, in, in the right provider. So it's a huge opportunity. It's a super complex space and everybody uh, stands to win here. The patient can actually afford care. The hospital provider is going to get paid and the employer is going to provide a very useful benefit to their employees. Awesome, Craig. Would love to dive into the, the benefit decision and treatment decision guidance. That seems like it really rounds out the offering and makes it hard to say no to. But again, in the interest of time, we'll come back to that. Interesting time. I do want to rope in Brenda and Kim here, just about kind of thoughts and discussion going forward. Both of them are kind of broad experts within the field of life sciences and healthcare. And, you know, we've, we've spoken about a lot of areas of opportunity here, whether it be preventative and nutrition, medicine, supplements, direct-to-consumer wellness, facets of the unbundling of the PCP, whether it's remote patient, remote, remote patient monitoring or telemedicine. You know, one of the things we've looked at and talked about before is trying to find new insurance models around the theme of concierge doctor, similar to an Oscar Health, you know, predicting drug interactions with genomic data, imaging pricing analysis. Would be curious to talk to Craig about that. But Brenda and, and Kim, as you see it, you know, I know you each have your fortes, but they all coalesce around this area. What are you seeing as the, the biggest areas of, of opportunity around? this broad trend of, of consumerization and what's the, what's the low hanging fruit and, and where are you focusing? Well, I'll start. I would say that 
when we started our fund, we were looking at access and incre increasing access to care. Generally speaking, we were talking about remote patient monitoring. And it was interesting four years ago having to explain what that meant and how it would be possible. So what's been phenomenal in the last year has the, the crisis of a global pandemic and the need to provide to have new new business models the, the technology and the businesses and the co the coding were all in flux and it forced streamlining of information so the fact that the first new remote patient monitoring cpt codes had just come out late december that changed everything in terms of the possibilities yet clinicians hadn't hadn't been practiced in in the art of telemedicine and telehealth practice so for us we had already been looking at and, and investing in, in companies that were sensor-based data-driven consumer patient focused and now the market demand and the the reimbursement is all finally coming together. So for example, one of our one of our companies, Dictionary Medical, has embedded sensors for orthopedics. Felt like a pipe dream, super exciting when looking at the early stages of the product development, escalated, they've got um, breakthrough status, filed their Genova 510K, partnered with Zimmer, and we'll have the first smart orthopedic on the market next year. And that and, and a year ago, when we were having conversations at the board table around, you never want to build it and hope they will come in healthcare. But now we feel that everything that's been happening and all the trends that are, are coalescing, we're going to have a much more, well, I personally have a, a lot of optimism. And in the last two months, I think we're now at six investment banks writing on the product we're still private it's i've never seen this kind of attention for a private company and and what really a year ago i was still talking about is emerging tech it is but all of these groups are hovering around wow the first smart orthopedic on the market and uh, so from a trend perspective i'm still digesting it quite frankly in terms of what the possibilities will be but super optimistic about it coming to market in the summer. And it really comes down to the trend of remote patient monitoring, moving from niche to being essential in a pandemic and shutdown, but also becoming a new modality that is just becomes a standard of care from acute, but more so from a chronic. So the new CPT codes have also created incentives for the, the surgeons where they have a couple of years of regular recurring chronic monitoring where they even as clinicians, part of their team can check in on patients. So super excited about the ability of remote patient monitoring and, it's, and the management of care, acute, chronic, and enabling hopefully, hopefully more, more health, healthy aging. And then one other around remote patient monitoring embedded sensors. So we're, we're very much focused on chronic disease management 
And I think the prevention of chronic disease, but also managing life with a chronic disease, those are the two bookends versus the, the billions and billions that need to go towards drug development and cures. We still want to prevent, and, and you mentioned, Tom, in your opening comments about metabolic, metabolic conditions. Well, metabolic syndrome is, is one of the most misunderstood epidemics in the U.S., so we're very happy to see more attention going around the importance of mobility and, and weight maintenance and managing your risk factors. I truly believe with COVID and weight is the number one pre-existing condition predictive of a poor outcome with contracting the virus, that that in itself has brought new attention to, to weight management and just managing metabolic syndrome. And, and your chronic condition risk factors. So those are two really big areas, remote patient monitoring, and, and really, I guess it comes down to preventative health being taken more seriously. Great. Well, we certainly agree, Brenda, and it'd be great to, to partner with you. But again, if Sean Thompson is out there in the ether listening, thank you for the, uh, the connection to, to Brenda. <laughs> Kim, would love to get your thoughts. You know, when we spoke last week, you made a great point, sobering point, that, you know, a lot of the technologies I was discussing with you were, you know, price prohibitive for all but the, you know, the, the wealthiest and the most tech savvy. How do you view this market in light of wanting the greatest good for the greatest number of people and, and really, truly democratizing it for true consumerization, not just the consumerization of, of the few? Yeah, I mean, I think COVID has uh, highlighted, for better or worse, the disparities. And I'll, I'll, there's multiple dimensions to it. We always think about maybe it's ethnic or maybe it's socioeconomic. It's also geographic. I mean, I am 50 miles outside of New York City, and, and I had to turn everything else off in the house in order to have a stable line to be able to do this video. And I've got as much bandwidth as I can get in my area. So that, that's just the reality. The other thing is there's the young versus the older and, you know, it's all well and good to try to do a FaceTime video with your grandparents, trying to get them on a HIPAA compliant video screen, you know, logging in by themselves is, is almost close to impossible for the vast majority of them. And so there's some, there's some real structural but solvable issues that need to be addressed for this to be for every person. But I have a lot of enthusiasm, and I think that we're finally at the tipping point where we will abandon what we currently call healthcare, which I view as the treatment of symptoms once you've gone off the edge, and move ourselves to wellness, which is somehow enabling yourself to avoid symptoms and to identify that a symptom may be coming soon enough that you can do something about it. I mean, as a I'll call it a, a master athlete. <laughs> I know that sometimes I overdo and I know that what it's going to take for me to kind of rehab quickly. And I know that even though I don't want to get out of bed, I'm going to get out of bed and get back in the gym because freezing in place is more, is going to be more detrimental than me getting out there and doing a appropriate, you know, recovery type workout. And so one of the places that I look to see, you know, how can we turn what is currently healthcare tools into wellness tools is what athletes are doing. If you think about how athletes have hijacked 
everything from sleep monitors to glucose monitors to pulse oximeters and everything else, they come up with the coolest and most creative ways to optimize their performance using these technologies. And I think that that has two benefits. One is you can start moving things out of the medical world into the I can buy it at Target world <laughs> and, and go on the volume play rather than the high cost play. But I think it also, when people start to take control over their own wellness, then you see them engaging in the formal healthcare system in a more effective way. You know, earlier you had talked about with Sunny, how, how do physicians get involved? You know, right now, physicians do not have to take a nutrition class. They do not have to take anything close to a physical therapy class. They do not have to take a lot of mental health classes in order to be a licensed physician in the United States. And right now, if you think about the challenges that we have around metabolic disease and mental health, and by the way, mental health, we haven't talked about, but Talkspace is actually going public through a SPAC this week. It, you know, there's just so much open white space, so much opportunity and, you know, humans are really good at using themselves as experimental devices. I mean, think about the crazy diets people have put themselves on over the millennia in, you know, just to see what it does for me. And I think that we can leverage that experimentation and that desire for wellness for good, both economic good and, and social good. Hey, I'll stop there, but... I can get wind up. No, I appreciate that, Kim. And uh, we're at one minute over. But if so, if you have to leave, by all means, feel free to uh, to exit without saying goodbye. I know we're a minute over, but you know, if you want to stick around, perhaps there are other questions from the large audience we have. If there are any questions, comments, I know there have been a couple answered on the uh, Q and A written uh, version. But if anyone wants to unmute and ask anybody a question, please do so now. I have a question for Sunny, if I may ask. Sure, Brenda, yeah. go ahead. Uh, okay, uh, Sunny, when I, when I was reviewing the business, I, I'm curious around the frequency of reassessment and, and what trends you're seeing there. And when you're doing the reassessments, have you provided the consumer with, I know you're not a diagnostic company, but are you providing them with information around, you may have risk factors around the following when they start and when they reassess, here's where your current status is related to those risk factors? Yeah, good question, Brenda, and appreciate all your comments related to, to healthy aging. We, it's something we definitely believe in as well. The, the process originally started as a three-month cycle because I kind of felt like that would be where you'd want to reassess. And so it used to be a $300 offering and you'd get the test and then you'd get three months of probiotics. So we've actually built one of the largest longitudinal whole genome microbiome data sets that there is out there since we've been doing this since 2016. And now we've changed that offering once we kind of hit this milestone and we had the insights we were looking to launch into clinical trials and start to do some of the more diagnostic work, including, including the COVID assay. The, the consumer product and the wellness product that we offer 
now is switched to monthly. And so at month four, you're given the option to retest. So it's a free test and you just stay on the subscription. And if you don't want to retest, that's fine. We'll ship you the kit. You can just keep it at home. And when you're ready to retest, send it in and we will adjust the probiotics based off of what we're seeing and detecting. So if you started from a place where you had high levels of E. coli or SIBO from Club Sella or something really negative, you're probably going to want to take advantage of that readjustment. If you started at a super, uh, like Kim, at a fit athlete level and, and just iron gut, you know, you, you may not need to do that reassessment as quickly, but you want to maintain that sort of optimum gut microbiota and balance. And so you just wait a little bit longer before you retest. But we do share and we have every report reviewed by PhD scientists and then a customized summary and objective is set for each customer at the onset. And then we evaluate how did we do, meaning us and the customer, because they also are part of this team, on the diet recommendations we gave, on the recipe recommendations, the things to drive down the inflammatory microbes, and anything that was in their gut microbiota. How did they do? Did those actually come down and give a summary of how they did? And then they can go into much more granular detail and actually see individual microbes and it all trends and tracks the concentrations for them. Great. Well, everybody, thank you so much for joining the great panelists. You've been terrific and uh, generous with your time. So thanks for walking us through what you're doing. And uh, for all those in attendance, thanks for your active participation. We do host these calls once a month. We oscillate between healthcare and food and ag. Uh, next month, my colleague David Yoakum will be presenting on some interesting topic within food and ag. And then in March, we'll be back to healthcare. So please uh, feel free to reach out if you're interested in getting on these mailing lists. And hopefully we will uh, see you at future deep dives. So until then, have a great day. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. So Thanks, much. everybody. See ya.